Now, I don't, I don't say this to sound like a commercial, but my family and I, we have insurance through USAA. Y'all know that commercial? USAA. You know the commercial? And the, the only reason I share it is because USAA uh, works on a unique approach, a unique premise. They only insure individuals and families who serve or have served in the military. And then those, ex those benefits can extend on down to the children and, and grandchildren of service members. And so we had this little interesting scenario. I never served in the military, neither did Jennifer, but we are eligible for this insurance because Jennifer's dad served in the Navy 60 years ago. Uh, and so her wonderful father, it's like, it's like this legacy program that's established now because her dad uh, gave and sacrificed for our country so many years ago, part of his, the benefit of his service now extends down to us uh, so many years later. We who didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, and yet we enjoy the benefits of his status, his status as a veteran. It's really an awesome thing and an awesome service that they offer. And the reason I mention that ultimately is to kind of help us to frame what's happening in Galatians, and specifically in Galatians 3. We're talking about legacy status. Who we are, we didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, but we are by virtue of someone who's come before us, okay? And that's actually, of course, that's a good thing. We'll talk about that. But it can also be a bad thing. And the Apostle Paul was running up against this. As he writes Galatians, he's writing it to uh, some churches who have been infiltrated and corrupted by false teaching. They'd been given this message that really denied these people full access to God because of their ancestry and their heritage. These were Gentiles, meaning they were non-Jewish people. They were former pagans. They were, at one time, idol worshipers, people who did not grow up obeying the Ten Commandments. It's possible that the, the people of Galatia never even heard of the Ten Commandments before they heard the gospel of Jesus. And so it's, it was an amazing thing when Paul comes and preaches Christ to these religious and social outsiders, they receive the gospel and are saved. And yet there were some Jewish people, Jewish Christians, in fact, who really didn't want to accept that. Because in their mind, God surely will not embrace outsiders like the Gentiles just as they are. And so the false message that they began to preach went like this. Okay, Gentiles, God can accept you into his spiritual family. Yes, he can. But only if you become like us Jews first. Faith in Jesus is good, but you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law that God gave his people Israel. Because, according to the Bible, this was the teaching, the Jews are the, are the special people of God's choosing. We are the people of God's promise. We are the sons of our father Abraham. And therefore, the legacy of Abraham belongs to us. And we belong to God as a result. So you Gentiles who were outside of the covenant, who are outside of Israel to begin with, you must now do the works of our law if you want to become children of Abraham also. Okay? Otherwise, you're always still going to be on the outside looking in. You can claim Jesus all day long, but you've got to go through the same door that we went through. Okay? Now, I, I try to mention this frequently. That was a very believable message because it seems to be very much rooted in the Bible. I mean, you open up to Genesis, there's Abraham. 
you open up to Exodus and Leviticus and so on, there's the law. It would seem fitting that God would call us to that first, and then we would experience the blessings and the benefits of Jesus. Well, Paul steps in. We see this in Acts in narrative form. We see it in Galatians in his letter. Paul denies that message with great force. He calls it not a nice addition to your faith. He actually calls it a message of condemnation. If you believe this, you are denying God altogether. That's how seriously Paul takes this false teaching. And in order to prove that it's a false teaching, Paul is not simply going to give us religious logic. He's going to take us to the Bible, to the Old Testament, the very same Bible that the false teachers were using and standing upon, saying this validates our word. Paul says, okay, let's actually look at what that word says and see if that teaching is really so. What does the Bible actually say about Abraham and the law? And that's what Galatians 3 is all about. Look at me in verse 6. Galatians 3, Paul begins with this first line of argument. He says, even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So the, the false message said, if you really want to be set right with God, you have to become a son of Abraham. And in order to become a son of Abraham, you have to obey the Old Testament law. Well, Paul actually argues something that might surprise us here. He doesn't deny the whole sons of Abraham thing as if that's a frivolous, that's an old idea that no longer applies. Paul actually affirms that. We Gentiles do need to become children of Abraham. Almost like saying, God, listen, God has his own legacy program that he's given to us. If you want to enjoy the blessings of belonging to God, then yes, you must in a sense be a child of the promise, the promise that was given to Abraham, you must be part of Abraham's family. Yes, Paul affirms that. But then he, he deals with the all-important question, okay, how did Abraham himself become right with God? If we're supposed to be in and of Abraham in a sense, well, how did Abraham get set right with God? How was he justified himself? And we see that in verse 6 which is a quote from Genesis 15, back to the Old Testament. Abraham believed God, and it, his belief, his faith, was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, what was it that Abraham believed? You know, if you go back to this great story in the early chapters of the Bible, God took Abraham and promised him that he was going to have a natural-born son which in Abraham and Sarah's circumstance was a miracle. It could only happen by divine intervention. But God promised that you will have a child, and through this child, Isaac, Abraham's ancestors would become as numerous as the stars in the heavens. There would become a great nation out of Abraham, and that nation would then end up blessing the entire world. And here's what Paul wants us to see, that when God made these promises to Abraham... 
these were not rewards for Abraham's goodness. Abraham had not done anything good that got God's attention and warranted God's approval. He didn't set himself apart through his own righteousness. Rather, God called Abraham and made these promises to him simply out of God's own gracious choice. He chose Abraham from out of a pagan nation. He set his affection upon him. He made promises to him. And then Abraham faithfully walked them out. But he didn't earn God's affection in advance. So that's the the question for Paul, okay? So how is it that Abraham gained this standing before God? How was it that Abraham was righteous? He simply heard God's promise to him and believed God. He received righteousness. Rather than earning it, he received it by hearing with faith. That's how Abraham was justified before God. Which leads to verse 7, the most natural conclusion. Therefore, Paul says, be sure, be certain that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. What makes you a child of Abraham is not physical ancestry. The fact that you claim uh, to be a, a Jew, an Israelite, that does not make it so. You have to have faith. It's not any good work that you do that earns the distinction. You are a child of Abraham if you share in the faith of Abraham. It's as plain and as simple as that. It's not meritorious in any way. It's not something we could boast in of ourselves. It's simply the gift of God. And y'all, that was always God's plan. It was not an afterthought when Jesus showed up. God planned it from the beginning, and Paul shows us in verse 8. He says, the Scripture, capital S, because it was the voice of God, the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, Genesis 12, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now this this is amazing. All the way back in the initial calling of Abraham, Paul says the gospel, the good news was being preached. God's plan to bring blessing to the whole world, not just to Abraham and his physical descendants, but to the nations. It was being preached from the get-go. The good news was there from the beginning. In you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. And of course, we'll see this next week. This is a promise that has its true fulfillment in Jesus. Not ultimately in Abraham, but from him, his offspring, his seed, will be the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So y'all, we we can be clear on this. I hope it's clear week by week. Nobody but Jesus can save us. Abraham certainly cannot save us. Only Jesus does through his death and resurrection. But in a very real sense, Paul affirms it. We belong with and in our father Abraham. He is the one to whom the promise was made. And through his seed, the promise was fulfilled. And now we partake of it as his children. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Is that how it goes? I wasn't about to sing it. How can that possibly be true if we're non-Jewish? It's a matter of faith, not ancestry, not heritage, not works. So we are in Abraham in that sense, but we are also with him. He's our model. He's our example. Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. 
You and I are set right with God. We are justified the same way Abraham was, not by our works, but by God's promised grace. We hear the good news, we believe in Jesus Christ, and we are reckoned as righteous in the eyes of God. Now, I just want to be very brief on this, but when we use that word reckon, that's not the southern word we're using here. I reckon it might rain later, okay? Not so much. What that word means is God actually calculates you as being righteous. Not in the way that we might assume, the, the very natural impulse that we all have that says, okay, God calculates up all my good works, and then he calculates up my sins, and hopefully at the end of the day, the good outweighs the bad. The sum of the good is greater than the bad. Y'all, if that's how it worked, in all sincerity, the math would never, ever be in our favor. And we need to know that for a fact. Our good would never outweigh our bad. God would not accept us on those terms. And so what does God calculate? He calculates our utter inability to save ourselves. And he calculates our total dependence on him. That's what faith is. It's dependence on God. It's looking to him and him alone. And God graciously bestows a righteous standing upon us on the basis of faith. Y'all, all the sum of our righteousness is coming from God, not from us. He reckons it to us. He takes from his own perfect righteousness and now credits it into your account as if you had earned it, as if it were really yours. And now, because God is gracious, it is really yours. But only by his doing, it's a gift of God. Right? Something we could not produce, God has now accounted to us. And y'all, here's, this is the point, okay? Just beat this horse for one more second. God reckons us righteous the same way he did Abraham. Without regard for circumcision, Abraham had not been circumcised yet. Without regard for good works, it was not a reward for what Abraham had done. No. He gives it to us the same way. Now, y'all, extra credit, by the way, if you want to take some time, 10 minutes later today or tomorrow, read Romans 4. We don't have time for it today. But Romans 4, Paul actually gives us more detail greater detail concerning this, this idea from Galatians 3. Read them side by side, Galatians 3, Romans 4. Y'all, it'll knock the socks right off your feet. It is amazing, amazing stuff, okay? But even without Romans 4, we see Paul has destroyed that first line of argument. Must you become a child of Abraham? Yes, Paul says. But you already are by faith. Not by anything else you must do. So that line of argument is out. The Bible says so. Now the second argument, right, which says, you must build up your own righteousness by keeping God's law. And again, that makes so much sense. Every human religion is based on some variation of that rule. Keep God's word, keep the path, keep the pillars, and you will be acceptable, right? That is to say, faith is good, faith is great. But you have to, you, at the end of the day, you rely on your own duty, your own law-keeping, to get right with God. How would you respond to that line of argument? How does Paul respond? He takes us back to the book. What does the Bible really say? What does the law really say about itself? Look at verse 10. Paul says, For as many as are of the works of the law 
are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Now, weekly reminder, the law of God is good. The law of God is perfect because it comes from the mind and the heart of a perfect God. It reflects to us God's righteous character, his justice, his very heart. The problem was never with the law to begin with. The problem is when sinful people think that we can uphold the law and that we must uphold and keep the law in order to be righteous. Right? Verse 10, that's exactly what verse 10 is telling us. Everybody who relies on the works of the law, everybody who makes the rules your basis for being justified is under a curse. And Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 27, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, that's what the law says about itself. Listen to what this is saying. The only way it would make any sense for one of us to build our lives on the law is if we could actually keep it entirely, without fail, for a lifetime. And it's, it's even bigger than that. Recognize this. We don't just keep the Ten Commandments, the big ones. We keep them all. There's 613 of them in the Old Testament. The big ones and the small ones. And you can't just keep them externally for y'all to see. You've got to keep them from the heart. You've got to keep them from a sincere heart at all times. We should recognize how impossible this is, right? But maybe, now maybe you're especially good and religious. I try hard to be a good religious person. And there are times, y'all, where I think, maybe, maybe, just maybe, I could have a really good day. And God would be especially accepting of my righteousness. Well, here's a little test, okay? Now, just for fun, let's take the golden rule. That's not an Old Testament rule as much, although it ratifies what the Old Testament says. Jesus is the one who gave us the golden rule. Not Abraham Lincoln, by the way. Facebook is lying to you. Jesus gave us the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Y'all, that's elementary school stuff, isn't it? Isn't that great? And nobody, you don't even have to be a religious person to agree with it. It's wonderful. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay. Have you ever actually kept the golden rule? Really think about it now. Because here's what it means, y'all. We're not talking about external religious niceness. We're not talking about cordial behavior. When Jesus says, treat others as you would have them treat you, what that means is that you always, always, from a sincere heart, because you really mean it, you treat everybody with the kind of generous, unselfish, joyful, pure, and patient, loving kindness that Jesus calls us to exhibit all the time from the heart. And it's sad for me to say this, but it's just the truth. I have not kept the golden rule for one solid hour, let alone a day, let alone a lifetime. And I don't have to know you to know that you haven't either. Not really from the heart. And that's, of course, the whole point. That's what the Bible affirms. 
if I think that I could earn my way to God through my own goodness, I only end up under the curse of my own badness. And I want to say that again. If I think I can earn my way to God through my own goodness, I only end up under the curse of my own badness. Because, y'all, the law of God will not polish you up and make you better in the end. The law of God, instead, will only expose us for what we really are. We are sinners. And if I can't keep the law of God perfectly, the law says I'm under the curse of its consequences. If I am a sinner, even in the most minute sense of that word, I'm under the curse of the consequences of the law. I bear the penalty. But once again, Paul reminds us, God never gave us the law to save us to begin with. That was never its purpose. You see verse 11 again? Now that no one is justified by the law before God, it's evident, it's obvious. For, he quotes Habakkuk here, the righteous man shall live by faith, not by law. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them, the laws, shall live by them. Law and faith are not of the same essence or nature. They're not two sides of the same coin. Law and faith are not two roads that get us to the same ultimate destination. No, they're different approaches, right? One approach looks to me to achieve my righteousness. The other approach looks away from me and instead looks to God for his righteousness that only he can give as a gift. And so if you submit to one of these two ways, you have to nullify the other one. If you submit to the law, you have to nullify grace. Grace means gift. Law means reward. You can't have both. Of course, if you submit to grace, then you get to leave the law behind. The law is not your righteousness. The law is good, but it can't save me. I'm saved by grace, right? One nullifies the other. And so Paul is saying to these Gentile Christians of Galatia, if you go back to relying on the law, that becomes your new standard of righteousness. And you come back up under the curse of the law because you can't keep it and it can't save you. If you go back to it, you become a slave to it. You come up under the curse because it was never given in the first place to make you righteous. Don't mistake it for something it's not. Now, we have to ask this. This is an all-important question now. Okay, well, if the law can't save us, and if we, because we're sinners, if we're under the curse of the law, then what hope is there now for us who stand under this curse? Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, what, we, what we just read, this is, a, this is one of the most massive truths in all the Bible. Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He has bought us back for himself. He has ransomed us out of slavery and he's made us his own beloved 
possession. Jesus has delivered us from the curse of sin's penalty. How? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And again, that's a quotation from the law. Paul takes us back to the law, specifically from Deuteronomy, where a curse is pronounced over a lawbreaker. And in this case, someone has violated God's law so egregiously that he is put to death and hanged in public as a spectacle, as an outward sign of how awful his sin was and how the punishment must merit the crime. This is such a sin, this is such a crime, that it must be dealt with in a special and especially heinous way. But put these ideas together, and really, all this is, if this doesn't shock you, it's because we've been in church too long, okay? And I'm the same way. I've heard, this, I've heard this too many times, and I've lost the sense of shock. But think about what Paul's, t- he, what is he doing? He's putting Jesus, who was hanged on a cross, in the same category as a criminal being hanged on a tree. And part of what makes that so shocking is the fact that we know of Jesus, that Jesus did not live under the curse of the law. Never once to begin with. Jesus was the only person who ever lived who actually fulfilled all righteousness, who never sinned, who obeyed the law perfectly outside and in. He was sinless, perfect, righteous inside and out. But y'all, that's the point of verse 13. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the good news of what Christ has done that now becomes our defining reality, our story. At the cross, the perfect one, Jesus, became a curse for us. This was by God's design. Jesus took on himself this curse of the law, the curse of sin's penalty, the curse that we bear for our chosen sins and transgressions was taken away from us and given instead to Him. And y'all, what that means is, on the cross, Jesus really, truly, bore in Himself the judgment, the final judgment, for our sins, as if He had committed them. Y'all, what I'm always prone to do is make the cross an abstraction It's a wonderful idea what Jesus did for me. But I don't really dig down to the depths of what he did. When Jesus died on the cross, he took on the actual guilt for my actual sins. As if he did them. All of them. The big ones and the small ones. The public ones and the ones that you'd never know about. He took them. He took responsibility for your sin and the penalty for every dark and ugly thing you ever did. And this is a hard message for us to grasp because we, I think we want to believe that that forgiveness is more therapeutic than this. That God loves me and so he just kind of looks down on me like a grandpa 
And he just can't stay mad at me because I'm so precious. And he just forgives us, right? Y'all know, that's not how forgiveness works. Not in the mind and heart of God. We have to press into this. If we really want to understand his heart and how great a salvation that we've been given, the penalty for sin does never magically disappear. God cannot and will not ignore sin and evil, sweep it under the rug, and just forgive. He can't without denying his nature as one who is righteous and holy and just. No, the penalty for sin has to be paid. Justice must be done. And this is what makes the gospel such amazing grace, such amazingly good news, that God, rather than judging sinners and destroying us in the process, God voluntarily, willingly, took that judgment upon himself. He bore the penalty in his son. Jesus paid it all. How can God destroy our sin without destroying us? Only if he puts it on his perfect son in our place. And that's exactly what he's done. That's why Paul can say with absolute confidence, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. How can we be that confident that what Jesus has done has really transcended culture and has really overcome our past, no matter what we've done. How can we know it with the same kind of confidence that Paul does? We always simply look at what the Bible says. If our sins have been accounted to him, and his righteousness has been accounted to us, what more could there possibly need to be done? What more is left hanging out that we've got to do to complete what God started? Everything is finished and perfect and now available to us apart from works. You and I can't possibly earn our way in, so why even try? We simply receive him by hearing with faith, just as Father Abraham did. How are we now children of the promise? Because the promise was given without regard for our worthiness. In that case, it, would, it, it wouldn't be much of a promise, right? It would be a command. To the degree that you and I figure it out, God might accept us. That's not good news. The good news is that in Jesus Christ, we are accepted as a free gift. Because in his love, in his mercy, he has given himself for us. May we receive him in full, looking away from me and celebrating his mercy alone. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask this morning for us, Lord, that even if only for just a moment, Lord, would you help us calculate our despair if all of this were left up to us, if we were gathered this morning in this room simply to, for a pep talk, to go and, and do better, be better, because everything is riding on us, 
Lord, I pray that you would give us a sober dose of that reality for just a moment that left to ourselves, the math would never add up. We are under the curse of the law and the consequences of our failure, our sin. And Lord, if we see that, and I pray that we just, I pray we can see it, that we can feel it, that we would have no cause to look to ourselves. We'd have no reason at all to look to ourselves this morning. No desire to look within. That we would, as we just sang, we would turn our eyes upon Jesus fully, fully. He is our Savior. He has borne in Himself the curse of the law. He has taken the guilt of our sin. He has taken our sin away. And we bear it no more. I pray, Lord, I pray that this morning, perhaps somebody in this room, somebody watching on the live stream, somebody somewhere, Lord, would come to, to, to believe and treasure what Jesus Christ has done. All of us, I pray, would believe it more deeply. But Lord, if, if you would bring to bring a bring the light of Jesus Christ into our hearts this morning, shine upon us the, the light of grace, not the darkness of our own works, no matter how good we think they are, but the light of grace. The free gift we cannot earn and we also cannot lose because Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Father, thank you that you have not calculated things the way we would, but that, Lord, you've given it all, given it all to, to people like me who would never deserve it otherwise. Lord, this morning, let us, uh, let us have, I pray, a very clear sense of what the Bible has always said, even from the beginning. There was never a program of law that was going to save us. Never. It's always been grace. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see it and delight in it. That, Lord, your purpose fulfilled in Jesus Christ was, was in your heart before the world began. And we now are children of the promise, children of Abraham, if we receive Jesus Christ. So may we receive him. And Lord, let us, uh, let us no longer try to grind out our own justification. We are only set right by the grace given to us. And so Lord, let that be the, the greatest relief, the greatest joy. And Lord, let it mark how we live from this day forward. Please, we pray in Christ's awesome, awesome name. Amen.